It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? I made it clear that my intention was to play, and my intention was to play for the New York Jets. Rodgers going for it all, looking to bring it open. He's got it! Lazard! Gonna go! Touchdown! Rodgers snaps it quick, scrambles to his right, pumps and runs, and Rodgers is inside the pylon! Allen has time. Intercepted! Sauce Gardner's got it, breaking away, Garrett Wilson, Wilson a big play downfield, Allen tripped up, he could not get past Jermaine Johnson, oh look at the speed of Brees Hall, he's done it again, Brees Lightning, 62 yards for the touchdown, and he's sacked again by Quinton Williams, what a beast, number 95 for the Jets, listen, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at Play Like a Jet One. And it is time for part two of the weekend mailbag. So for that, we bring back our friend who is the editor over at JetNation.com, Mr. Glenn Naughton. So let's jump right back into the mailbag. Next question comes in from Herman eight 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 eight. That's a lot of eights. He asks, Will the Jets be able to sign Quan Alexander or have they moved on? Quinn and Williams will get extended before mandatory practices, but what's the best way for everybody to stay calm until that happens? <laughs> Let's start with Quan Alexander. I don't think the Jets have moved on from him. A lot of people thought that they had moved on from Conor McGovern and then they went out and got him because the price was right and they were able to make it happen. I think that could happen with Quan Alexander, but the Jets aren't exactly hell-bent on bringing him back. I think at this point, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I don't think they're moved in either direction one way or the other, but I wouldn't rule it out. I'm just saying I don't think that it's the foregone conclusion that a lot of people expected a while ago. As far as Quinn and Williams, Jets fans really don't have to worry about that until training camp. If he doesn't have a deal by training camp, then you can start to worry a little bit. But as you said, as long as it gets done before that, no reason to freak out. So if I were to give advice to Jets fans on this, I would say don't even think about it until training camp comes up. Hopefully the Jets and Quinton Williams will get a deal done. As Andy Vasquez said on the show, you heard what Robert Sala mentioned during his presser the other day after OTAs. He said Quinton will be here. The deal will get done. Now, it doesn't guarantee anything, but Sala has to know he is going to look really bad and have a lot of egg on his face if they don't get a deal done with Quinton Williams. So he must be pretty confident that it's going to get done before training camp. We'll see, but for now, I would recommend not freaking out because there's no reason to be upset about it unless training camp comes up and they haven't gotten it done yet. Yeah, I think the I think the Quan thing, I, I said, I don't know, three, four weeks ago, maybe less, I don't know, that I, I, I his return felt inevitable, especially I thought once the draft wrapped up and it's, if they didn't take a linebacker early on, which they didn't, I thought Quan Alexander was kind of a lock to come back, but he's still out there. So unless the Jets are asking him, you know, say, hey, give us a call when you're ready to take the vet minimum. Um, I can't see why it's not done. So I'm I'm less optimistic about it now. I also and, and listen, I think Quan Alexander is a good player, brings good energy. Um, but, I, you know, if I were just to look at the, the fan responses on social media, I, I he, he kind of gets talked about like he's a multi time all pro. Um, I see people freaking out like we can't let this guy go. Um, what you can, I mean, you, you, you could bring him back and that'd be nice and I'd be all for it. Um, but obviously the Jets don't feel nearly as strongly 
as some of the folks out there because he's been out there this whole time and even if his price is more than what they're asking I'm sure he's not breaking the bank so I'd still I'd say there's a, still a chance he comes back but I'm not as sold and with the Quinnen thing I think look I said earlier in the offseason get it done now because you knew these other deals were going to come and drive the price up and now that's kind of happened and the price has been driven up it's it's going to get done eventually you know I, I'm of the same mind and I I think a, a lot of people have said you know, if it's not done by camp, then you can start to worry because that's when players say things like, I'm not going to negotiate in season. So now you've lost that opportunity to, to sign me. And then it gets into next year. And then you get, start getting into the you tag him and cause animosity there. So that's all a ways down the road. I wouldn't worry too much about it right now. But the Jets, we've talked about this guy. They do have a lot of work to do to free up some cap space. They, When you look at, you know, they've got to they've got to get that new Rodgers deal done. And even when that's done, as it is now, they're forty million over the cap, so they're still going to be tight against the cap even when Rodgers is done. And then you're looking at 20, 25 million, possibly upward over twenty five million for Quinn and Williams. So it's not going to be easy. One thing that's worth pointing out here, by the way, in terms of Quinn and Williams, is some people have said the price is as high as it's going to get because the market is set, and so the Jets don't have to rush on this. You're forgetting one very important piece to this puzzle, and that's Chris Jones. Chris Jones mm -hmm. is still waiting for his extension. If he signs it before Quinn and Williams, he's going to get a ton of money, and he's easily going to top everybody except Aaron Donald. At that point, the price could indeed go up again for Quinn and Williams. And, Glenn, I think a lot of people are not accounting for the eventual Chris Jones extension here. And yeah, you know, I've I've said a couple times that you know we have to remember as much as we say you know get this done and sign him and do this, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, and it's entirely possible that Quinnen's reps are saying, look, we know you're the best guy, or we believe you're the best guy. We know the Jets don't want to lose you, so we're gonna we're gonna make it tough on the Jets until everyone signs and drive the market up. So, like they might be wanting Chris Jones to sign, and Chris Jones might be wanting Quinnen Williams to sign. Right. They just want every de every big deal done. So they have another one to point to and go, we're better than that guy. We're better than that guy. We're better than that guy. So as you, the, the price is going to keep going up. I believe both sides want to get a deal done. But it, it also wouldn't surprise me if the reps are, are happy to sit back and say, we're not going to sign now and we'll just keep letting your price tag go up. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Next question comes in from J.K. He asks, can you talk about C.J. Mosley? No doubt he's a leader and brings experience to a young defense, but most Jets fans felt his performance last season was overrated and that he remains a liability in coverage. And what is his contract situation now that it's been restructured again? So, yeah, I agree. C.J. Mosley's play certainly slipped last year, especially the second half of the season. He was a liability in coverage. He looked pretty slow at times. He's the best linebacker they have right now, but at the price point, it's pretty tough to justify. Now, Glenn, I'm going to let you talk about the restructure because you and I have discussed this before with C.J. Mosley. It makes it very difficult for the Jets to do much of anything, especially if they want to keep C.J. Mosley here. That restructure that they did with him in the past is sort of coming back to bite them now. But look, what it ultimately comes down to with Mosley is he's going to be here this year, and so the Jets are going to have to creatively scheme around his weaknesses. We'll see if Robert Sala and Jeff Ulbrich have the pieces to try to do that. As I said, Chuck Clark should help in that regard because he can cover tight ends and he can chip in at linebacker at times. So maybe that'll be a chess piece that they can use to help counteract the liability that C.J. Mosley is in coverage and the fact that he seems to be a step slower right now than he had been in past years. 
as you said, C.J. Mosley, really good leader in the locker room, should really help the players on this young defense continue to get better. But there's definite downsides with him now that we didn't see in previous years, and the Jets have to be able to understand that and plan around it. Yeah, so I think with the C.J. Mosley thing, as as you mentioned, Scott, they, they did that restructure, and you can't go and restructure a guy again too soon after the initial one. Now he's got this huge cap hit or this, this huge cap number, and their lack of depth at the position means he probably hangs around. You know, I looked at it the other day, and if if over the cap has it right, which they normally do, um, he'd be a $17 million savings if they cut him loose, and this is for a team that needs a lot of cap space. But I don't know that they take advantage of that because of the fact that there's there's no proven depth behind him unless they really love Jamie and Sherwood. And I've talked about that in the past on our show. I'd, I'd love to know how they do feel about Sherwood internally because if they do think he's a guy who can step in, maybe it does mean Mosley moves on. But right now we have to assume he's going to be there. And he is a liability in coverage. Like right now, if I'm game planning against the Jets, I'm going to go four wide and try to create some one-on-one matchups, keep a running back in the backfield, and see if the Jets go man on him with C.J. Mosley and expose that all day. Um, you know, the, the Jets, the, you know, they try to get a little bit more athletic with Zaire Barnes, but he's a rookie and who knows if he's going to be any good and who knows how much of the field he's going to see this year. So there are some questions in terms of Mosley being the guy covering, uh, is, having Mosley in coverage in the middle of the field. It, it was a liability last year. There's no reason to think that'll change this year. So it, it is a little bit worrisome. And I've, I've said that's my sort of QB2 and, and defending the middle of the field are my two number one concerns right now. Next question comes in from Peter J. Dillard. He asks, what do you think will be the major changes we see offensively schematic-wise with the new offensive coordinator and quarterback? We all expect better production, but what will be different with scheme and philosophy? Also, what veteran from last year's team currently on the roster do you think will be gone via cut, trade, etc. by week one? So let's start with the first part of this. Offensively, how will things be different? It's going to be a very similar offense because Nathaniel Hackett runs that West Coast style and it's very much in line with what Mike LaFleur was running. That was a big part of what Robert Sala liked about Nathaniel Hackett is that he could bring Hackett in here and have an experienced guy who runs a system similar enough that the players wouldn't have to learn an entirely new system. What will be different are the little wrinkles. And as we know with Aaron Rodgers, he's got the hand signals. He's got specific plays that he likes. There's a certain way that he likes to do things that obviously Nathaniel Hackett is very in tune with. And so they'll work together to put their own spin on the style of Jets offense that we've seen the last couple of years under Mike LaFleur and obviously with Aaron Rodgers here with him having that synergy with Nathaniel Hackett and certainly with Brees Hall and Garrett Wilson entering year number two with some experience under their belt you would hope to see changes in a positive manner and I think you will in 2023 as far as players on the roster that are veterans that I expect to be cut I already mentioned two of them I think Ashton Davis will be gone and I think Denzel Mims will probably be gone as well. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the offense looking different, the, the part I'm looking most forward to, I mean, obviously, you know, it's you want to see Aaron Rodgers under center, right? But it, it's the fact that having Rodgers under center is going to prevent teams from stacking the box because they're going to have to respect the quarterback for the first time in what feels like a lifetime. And then with, with the... With the defense backing off a little bit, once even when Brees Hall, even if he's not 100% right off the bat, the the combination of Brees Hall and Izzy Abanacanda running the football against defenses that won't have eight, nine guys in the box, I'm looking forward to, to this defense being more explosive 
not just through the air with Aaron Rodgers, but on the ground. And I think that if if this if the O line is healthy, right? Say Makai Becton is healthy, which we all know that's a, a huge question. If AVT and Becton are healthy and defenses are having to play honest, I think I don't think people. I think people are underestimating just how often the Jets will run the ball rather than lean on Aaron Rodgers and ask him to throw it 40, 50 times. You know, unfortunately, we saw that last year a lot with Mike White, um, you know, because the offensive line was so bad that the, the, the running game couldn't get anything going. And, and defenses, not only were they stacking the box, but they didn't even have to if they didn't want to because the run game wasn't that good. The the blocking up front was terrible. So we had we saw games where Mike White slinging it 40, 45 times. I think that could be a thing that unless the Jets have to, I don't think we're going to see Rodgers do a lot of that. And I think that we're going to see some explosive plays. Of course, we know Garrett Wilson and you added me, Cole Hardman, who whether he's a slot gadget guy, whatever he's going to be, he's has elite speed with Aaron Rodgers throwing the football. So I think we're going to see more explosive plays, and I think we're going to see the ball. I think we're going to see the Jets run the ball a lot more. I should also add, by the way, when I mentioned Denzel Mims, no matter what we think about his potential, it's clear that at this point the coaching staff just doesn't have a place for him. And in fairness to them, when Denzel Mims has gotten his opportunity under this coaching staff, he has not done anything with it. He's mostly been a net negative, which is unfortunate because he showed some promise his rookie year, and we all liked him, and we were all hoping that he would work out, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen for him here. Maybe a change of scenery will help. Who knows? But I don't expect him to be here for week one. Next question comes in from Michael Christopher. He asks, if the Jets hired Mike McDaniel instead of Mike LaFleur as offensive coordinator, would Zach Wilson have turned out differently? Also, same question if the Jets had gotten Tyreek Hill. There's no real way to know. How much of it is Zach Wilson just not being good? How much of it was poor development by Mike LaFleur? Was it somewhere in between? I couldn't tell you for sure. Obviously, we did see that Tua took a jump in year number three last year, but how much of that was Tua just being good and how much of that was Mike McDaniel's system and how much of that was them getting Tyreek Hill and teaming him together with Jalen Waddell? Impossible to know. I will say I do think there's a better chance that Zach Wilson would have had success under Mike McDaniel than Mike LaFleur, but that doesn't necessarily mean for sure it would have resulted in success. And I'd say the same thing with Tyreek Hill. Would there have been a better chance of Zach Wilson succeeding if Tyreek Hill was here? Sure, but that doesn't guarantee anything. And Garrett Wilson, despite being a rookie, was tremendous last year. So how much of a drop-off would there have been in year one from Tyreek Hill to Garrett Wilson in this offense? That's tough to quantify as well. So both are interesting things to think about. I would say better chance that Zach Wilson would have been successful year number two with Tyree Kill than not with Tyree Kill. Better chance that Zach Wilson would have been successful in year number two with Mike McDaniel rather than Mike LaFleur. But I can't say with any degree of certainty that things would have gone differently for him in either of those scenarios. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you can always wonder, and, and we all do it, I do it, you look at how things unfold, would it have been different this way, would it have been better that way. It, it, it's an unknown. I think the, the thing with Zach Wilson, though, that, that makes me believe it it wasn't really down to the offensive coordinator was was how often we've seen him just sort of melt down panic um and just kind of fall apart to where the, the he gets to the point where he can't complete a, a you know a, a simple pass we've talked about it how he can't hit a screen he's overthrowing guys who wide open right over the middle so these are all i mean they're, these are all high school throws that he's missing um, and I'm not really going to put that on the OC. I mean, something something clearly went wrong, like if we're being fair to Zach Wilson, um, whether it was him, whether it was whatever he may have done, 
he is a completely different guy than the kid we saw in college. And we've talked about this, right? People love to say, oh, well, this is the NFL now. That was BYU. And, like, we're not talking about the hard stuff. I'm talking about the easiest throws a quarterback can make at any level. He's missing those. Uh, um, you're not going to convince me that Zach Wilson can't complete a screen pass because it's that much more difficult at the pro level. Like it's it's a simple throw off of you know it, it's a quick throw. It's usually a one read. It, it, it's not like it's this complex in depth thing where things around him are happening so much faster that he doesn't have time to figure it out. It, we're talking about dump offs, and he can't hit those. I don't know if there's a coordinator who could have made that right, but. We'll never know. And same with Tyreek Hill. As you said, he had Garrett Wilson, who 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 went. You know, he had some big games, but he also had games where he didn't get a lot of opportunities because the QB play was so bad. And look, Elijah Moore. We're gonna find out a lot about Elijah Moore this year, playing now with Deshaun Watson. If he blows up, which I think he will, that's just gonna be another indication that you know it. Zach Wilson was the issue with the offense. I will say, Glenn, as far as Zach Wilson, it was mental, but maybe part of the argument here is that he never would have mentally broken down if he'd had more success in the early going with Mike McDaniel, who probably would have had a better idea of how to use him properly, and with a security blanket like Tyreek Hill. We'll never know, but it's something that's certainly worth thinking about. And speaking of Elijah Moore, by the way, Michael Christopher had a question about him. He said, do you think Elijah Moore would still be here if Mike LaFleur wasn't hired? Also, how did the Jets miss so much on Elijah Moore's character with his me-first attitude when they always prioritize that? Well, to be fair, the only thing that you heard about with Elijah Moore when you dug in on him as far as character was that silly celebration he did where he was pretending to pee in the Egg Bowl, which really cost Ole Miss. And from that point on, everybody said that it really hurt Elijah Moore and he was upset about it and he vowed to never do anything like that again, which he hadn't until we saw what happened here with Mike LaFleur. When you do your due diligence, sometimes things pop up that you're not expecting. You can do background checks on people. You can go to people that know them. You can investigate and you can find out all positive things and then something pops up that you weren't expecting. Remember, Elijah Moore didn't have to deal with the type of situation he had to deal with at Ole Miss, so you wouldn't have seen him in a situation where he had this level of adversity. Now, when I say this level of adversity, I don't mean making a bad play or messing up on the field or having a team that wasn't good. I mean having a quarterback that he felt was a lost cause and having an offensive coordinator that he felt wasn't targeting him at all, especially when he was open early in the year and he was really giving it his all. He was getting open all the time and they weren't targeting him and Zach Wilson wasn't seeing him. And so until you see a player in that situation, you're only guessing. Sometimes you miss something like that. And so that's all I can say. Elijah Moore, from everything I heard and clearly from everything the Jets knew, didn't exhibit that type of me-first attitude, but he'd never been in this type of situation before where he would have felt he needed to exhibit a me-first attitude. I will say also maybe the fact that his friend A.J. Brown got paid that big contract in the offseason, and he said to himself, I'll never get that kind of contract in this offense because they're not targeting me. I've got to put up the numbers or I'm never going to get paid like A.J. Brown did. That could have awakened those feelings in him as well. So again, things that the Jets didn't necessarily miss, they might just be things that developed over time. Remember, these are young guys. They are things in their personality that 
aren't there early on that might be there later. Or there are things in their personality that are considered troubling at the time, but as they mature, they get rid of those parts of their personality. So you can only do as much due diligence as possible. You can only talk to people and make the proper guesswork based on the evidence you had. And clearly what happened with Elijah Moore is not something that anybody foresaw based on the available evidence at the time. Yeah, the Elijah Moore thing, uh, we all heard about how some people were concerned because of the thing that happened at Ole Miss with the end zone celebration. And you kind of hope that he had grown up and learned from it, which looked to be the case. But when when he pulled what he pulled, uh, I, I said, I believe it was a couple weeks before the deal. Um, I said to a couple people, and I, I remember I even messaged you, Scott, and I, I said I wouldn't rule out a, a, a more trade. Yeah, and this is it wasn't even being talked about. But I what I said I couldn't get out of my head was the fact that, and I've talked about this before, the, the fact that Elijah Moore did what he did you know, off the heels of Robert Sala spending an entire offseason, preseason training camp, just talking about positive vibes only. And that to me, that was that was a huge slap in the face to Robert Sala that wasn't really talked about enough. Like you're the guy at the head of the at the head of every meeting telling every guy in that room about the importance of remaining positive And you're doing it for however many months. And the second this guy doesn't get a couple of targets in the middle of a winning streak, he's like, whatever, man, I want out. So I, that just stuck with me all year and into the offseason. I kept thinking, like, that's – I know Salah said the right things publicly, but I just kept thinking, like, that's really got to bother him. Like, this is a young dude who just came in the league and took the message he's been sending all year and just stepped all over it. So I, I, I wasn't shocked by it. I think that, you know, him get moving on was – there was a good chance of that. As far as the, you know, it, the Jets missing on it, like you said – reasons the things teams miss on you, you just you can't account for everything you know what i mean there's sometimes you you know a guy has maturity issues but you think all right maybe he'll grow up like there's enough talent there that we think he'll he'll move beyond that stage the selfishness or the whatever it may be so they took a shot on him and obviously they missed because he was a, a very much a me first guy and in the end that ended up costing him you know his time with the jets and unfortunately it cost the jets a very very good player, and I still think Elijah Moore can be a, a really, really high-end receiver. Glenn Naughton, editor over at JetNation.com. Thanks so much for coming on and answering some questions with me. Make sure to check out everything that Glenn's doing over at JetNation.com. Follow him on Twitter. Check out everything we've got going on over at PlayLikeAJet.com and the Play Like a Jet YouTube channel. The Thunder from Down Under, Luke Grant, has some awesome All-22 breakdowns on our channel, so watch those and subscribe if you haven't already. YouTube.com slash PlayLikeAJet. Visit our store, tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-Public.com. We've got the John Franklin Myers, Quentin Williams, Bless You, Thank You shirt, the Play Like a Jet logo shirt, caps, mugs, hoodies. It's all there, tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-Public.com. Public.com and be sure to give us a five-star review for the podcast on iTunes if you haven't done that already. Easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. Doesn't take you much time, doesn't cost you any money, but it goes a long way to help us out. So if you could go ahead and do that for us, we'd be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts and content, you know where to go. That's Play Like Jet Digital, playlikejet.com. <laughs>